Please take your Bibles tonight to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 10. Now, I have to apologize to you. We are taking a break to this evening from our series, um, uh, The Sermons of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for no other reason, but I've been reading the book of Hebrews uh, in my day-to-day devotions, and it is quickly becoming one of my favorite books in the entire Bible. If, you, if you're looking for an interesting read, may I just encourage you to slowly read through the book of Hebrews. And the reason I say slowly is it oozes with doctrine. It oozes with theology. And, and if you read quickly, you'll miss it. You'll read right over the beautiful things in this book. And so I, I feel like tonight the Lord is just kind of lit a fire under me to preach this specific sermon. Sometimes you'll be reading through the Bible as a preacher and, and something just gets you, just grabs you and says, man, that's got to be preached. And tonight, this is that sermon. Now, I will warn you, at any given time tonight, I very well may bust out into this uncontrollable belly cough, okay? I'm still trying to clear out my system and I'll tell you, it's the most uh, deep cough that I've ever had, but... Sometimes when I get a little physically exerted, I begin to cough extremely loud and out of control. So if that happens, Garrett, you just come on up and take over my sermon. All right, where, there he is. You just, you just walk right up here. The points are laid out. It's easy. It's all in the notes. Just come up and preach for me, okay? Sound good? All right. All right. So uh, thank you if you'll just uh, excuse me if I do go ahead and do that. Hebrews chapter 10 tonight. We'll begin reading in verse number 1. And the Bible says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of those things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because they that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance, again, made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no pleasure." Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, O, I, then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 11. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say His flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience 
and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Heavenly Father, Lord, we have now read about 25 verses from your word. And Lord, to say that there is some manner of depth to these scriptures would be a gross understatement. Father, the Word of God right here is oozing with beautiful theology and doctrine that is more than I can comprehend or understand. But tonight, Lord, I simply ask for Your help in explaining what I do understand. And Lord, what has been plaguing me all week and what has encouraged me all week, Lord, as I have gone through this life, Lord, please help me understand it and please help me explain it effectively. Now, Lord, as we have gathered here tonight, there's a lot of concerns and a lot of issues on our minds, but may we shelf those for just a few moments and may we focus completely on the Word of God. And Lord, if your Spirit does not meet with us tonight, it will be in vain that we have come. So, Father, we ask that your Spirit would do a mighty work in each and every heart tonight that's willing and open to listen to you. And I pray this in your Son's precious name. Amen. Now, as I've been reading the book of Hebrews, uh, one thing that has become abundantly clear to me, and maybe this is not what a lot of commentaries would say, maybe this is not what everybody would believe, but I think that the reason that we do not know the author of Hebrews for he's never mentioned in the book, he never puts his name on the book, I believe it is because, and you can think whatever you want, but I believe it's because he wanted Christ to receive all the glory from the book. That's not to say that in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians or any of the other books of the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ is not exalted. But Hebrews is unique in the fact that Jesus is the center focus of the entire book. And what you have to understand is now in the New Testament, it is very much a transitional period. All of the prison epistles, all of the general epistles, Acts, all the books of the New Testament were written essentially to instruct the local church on how to operate. It was to give us direction for how would we know what to do when we met if we did not have the New Testament. So it's very much a transitional period as we read the book of Hebrews. And what has happened now is these Hebrews have for so long been accustomed to everything that used to happen before Christ. Everything. The tabernacle. The, uh, the, the priests. The high priests. The, the, the sacrificing of blood uh, from goats and from calves and, and Uh, daily ritual cleansings and and, and washings and all of these things and these people had become so accustomed to them over the course of time that now that Jesus has come and they've received the gift of the Holy Spirit and they've received the gift of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. As this has happened, some of them have began to desire the old way. And can I just stop right here and say... The old way has nothing on the new way. And what I mean by that is, please don't mistake me. At no time do I believe in any dispensation that Jesus or that the Lord dealt with man any differently. And what I mean by that is, you may not understand what the word of dispensation means, but it means how God has dealt with people in different courses of time. So, for instance, in the Old Testament, some believe that was one dispensation. But at no point was the... Uh, uh, the uh, ability to sacrifice what saved people. It was the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, Brother Andrew, how could they know about Jesus Christ if, if He's not even come yet? Well, the exact same way we look back to a Messiah, they were looking forward to a Messiah. And no man has ever made his way to heaven apart from the precious blood of Jesus Christ. But right here, please understand, before we even get into the message, 
This is very much a transitional period. And some people have began to desire the old way. And if you read the, the, the chapters leading up to now, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews is telling them, the, the, the old tabernacle has nothing on the new tabernacle. The old priest has nothing on the new priest. And right here tonight, I want to discuss with you, the old sacrifice has nothing on the new sacrifice. Tonight, I want to talk to you simply about a bigger and a better deal. A bigger and a better deal. You see, isn't our society driven? Isn't every commercial we see advertising a bigger and a better deal? I remember it was not long ago, it was probably four or five Christmases ago when the iPhone was just being released. Maybe, maybe five or six now, actually, come to think of it. And I remember my brother, Gene Jr., um, I, you know, me and Gene, we always get together at Christmas, and he's just a real funny character, but we always argue, and it's kind of our thing. And I remember Gene Jr. had just gotten the brand new iPhone. Now, this was the first generation iPhone. I mean, it looked just like an iPod, but it had the phone application, and you could call people. It was, and I thought this was a terrible idea. Obviously, Apple's not looking to hire me. <laughs> I thought the iPod was a bad idea. You know, who wants to conveniently carry thousands and thousands of songs on one small device? Who can listen to it at any time? You know, I'm not very much of a forward thinker, so I thought the iPod was a bad idea. I thought the iPhone was a bad idea, but my dad had just gotten a brand new phone from Samsung. It was like the Samsung Encore or something like that. And it was supposed to rival the iPhone. And everybody was going crazy about the iPhone, but the only experience I had had was with my dad's Samsung. And so I was playing with it, and Gene Jr. came over for Christmas. And at one point in the evening, Gene Jr. says, Daddy, because that's how he talks. I don't know why, but... Daddy, this is the greatest invention known to mankind. I was going to go with the refrigerator, but you're probably right, Gene. The, the, yeah, the, the iPhone might do it. And so he was going on about the iPhone. I go, Gene, I just want to be honest with you. I've read hundreds of reviews. I've looked at tons of stuff. And this Samsung Encore smokes the iPhone. <laughs> he began to get angry at me, and he began to go on. And he was just, Andrew, you don't even know. This thing's the greatest thing. Well, does anybody know where the Samsung Encore has gone? <laughs> They're not making it anymore. We're on iPhone 5 version 2, right? That's where we're at now. You see, the iPhone was a great idea. Everything in our society is promoting bigger and better, right? We watch a Chevrolet commercial and they say, Chevrolet has better gas mileage in the V8 model than the V6 Ford. Everything is bigger and better. And that is truly what we all look forward to. I'm waiting for the iPhone 6 to come out so I can brag about it and say, hey, look, this is the greatest invention. It actually does cool my food. It's a refrigerator app. It's amazing. I'm excited about that. But everything in our society is driven bigger and better. And I just want to stop right here tonight and say, Jesus is the biggest and the best. He is so great. And the reason that I decided to preach this sermon tonight and not to continue with the series that I was in, we'll get back to that. But tonight, all I want to do is I want to brag on the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to explain to you why I believe He's bigger and why He's better than anything this world has to offer. He's so great. And tonight I want to look at three reasons why. First of all, we begin to notice, and this is clearly in the passage, the perfection of His sacrifice. See, notice with me in verse 1 of chapter 10. I love the way the Bible speaks, and I love the way the King James Version of the Bible speaks. It, it's, it's beautiful, the language that it uses. Right here in verse 1, the Bible says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. 
First of all, and I don't want you to notice, the reason Jesus' sacrifice is so perfect is it's because it was more than just a partial covering. You see, what happens is, in the Old Testament, what they would do, they would bring... They, and, this, and let me, let me just uh, earmark it all by saying, the law was ordained by God. And the people that trusted in God in the Old Testament were, were no less justified in their belief in Jesus Christ by obeying the law of God than we in the New Testament are. But I do believe that the Bible here is saying the law was just a shadow of what was to come. It was just a skeleton. It could not offer everything that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the reason. It's because as they would come year by year, they would bring their offerings. And once a year, they would bring on the Day of Atonement a calf or a a spotless lamb and they would offer it. And they had to do this every single year. And every single day the priest did something, whether it was burn incense or or do something to obey the law of God. But the very exercise of the practice showed how vain it really was. And what I mean by that is the fact that they had to do it every single day just showed that it was only going to last For a little bit of time. It could only delay the judgment of their sins. It could never take them away. Look in verse number 4 of chapter 10. This is exactly what it's saying. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. See, the fact of the matter is, the law is ordained of God. The fact of the matter is, uh, God asked them to give the blood of the goats and of the bulls. But he says, at no point was my plan ever for the law to permanently take away the sins of the earth. But you see, when Jesus Christ stepped out of glory, and he decided to humble himself into the form of man and veil his glory in the flesh of man. And he came down to the, uh, the cradle there, the manger in Bethlehem. And he lived his life 33 years. And, and uh, we men threw him on a cross. And, and we were the ones that day that threw him up there. It was no uh, Roman soldier. It was yours and my sins. It was no man one day. And Jesus willingly laid his life down. And the reason is because no longer was a partial covering acceptable. But what Jesus did that day was a permanent solution. It fixed it once and for all. You see, we need not worry about bringing our offerings. It, it, It has no saving merit. We need not worry to go down to the back pasture and find the prettiest and the best goat or the prettiest and the best lamb or the prettiest and the cleanest bull. We ought not have to worry about that. You see, our sacrifice, as the Bible says, once and for all, humbled himself in the form of man, humbled himself in the flesh of man and came down and willingly laid his life down for the sins of all mankind. And this not need be done every single day or every single year. The Bible says that He did it once and for all. Hebrews 10 verse 4, we've read it. Hebrews 7 verse 25. Wherefore He is able to save them to the uttermost. You see where these sacrifices could only do a partial covering. Where they could only delay the judgment of God. Hebrews tells us, Jesus cleanses us and saves us to the uttermost. I don't even know what uttermost means, but it sounds good, doesn't it? It's cleaner than we could become. It's perfect. He cleanses us and forgives us like the sacrifices never could have. His sacrifice is perfect because it was more than just a partial covering. But His sacrifice is perfect because He was able to purify the conscience. Look here in verses 2 and 3. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. Because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. 
But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. You see, the animal sacrifices did not accomplish remission of sins. Rather, they accomplished remembrance of sins. There's no way that the blood of bulls and of goats could take away sin. But each year that that man brought that calf or he brought that lamb or whatever it was, and every time the the priest offered that, that particular animal to the Lord that year, every time that happened, you know what was in the back of that man's mind? As soon as this one's gone, I'm going to have to do it next year for the sins that I commit. And even the holiest of man cannot live a sinless life. And every time they killed that goat or they killed that calf, they were thinking, you know, I'm going to have to do this next year. And I'm going to have to do it the next year. And I'm going to have to do it the next year because I'm always going to be a sinner. And see, that's what those sacrifices did. It pointed out the fact that each and every year, those people were sinners. Take your Bibles now to Hebrews chapter 9, just the chapter before. Verse 13 through 14, I want you to understand exactly what the Bible's talking about here. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, these people came and they offered their sacrifices year after year. But the blood of that calf and the blood of that goat can never take away the guilt of sin. Because it was just delaying its punishment. They killed that calf and that man for a moment felt at ease with God, but never was he at peace with God. Can I just say, thank you, Lord, that I don't have to deal with that. You see, because the very night that I decided to bow my head and I decided to trust Christ as my Lord and Savior once and for all, that night, you know how I described it? I felt as if a weight had been lifted off my chest. I have led many people to the Lord since that night. And almost universally, every one of them describe it the same way. I feel as if a weight has been lifted off my chest. Do you remember that feeling? That weight was the guilt of sin. And without the guilt of sin, there can never be any conversion. Without conviction of sin, there can never be any conversion to salvation. So you have to understand that you're a sinner. You have to understand that, uh, for, uh, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For you to be saved, that is primary, that is fundamental, that is basic, that you were and are a sinner. And it is not that you sin because you are a sinner. You, you, you sin, it is not that you are a sinner because you sin. It is you, are a, you sin because you are a sinner. You're guilty. And that guilt became ever clear that night of salvation for you. And many times it's evidenced by a tear from the eye. Many times it's evidenced by a trembling voice who says, Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. Many times it's evidenced in in an outpour of emotion. You know why? Because for the first time you understand that without Christ, you're on your way to hell. Without Christ, you deserve hell. Hell, you deserve the punishment for eternity because you're a sinner. But right here, Jesus takes away that guilt. And He removes that weight from off your shoulders. Because it was not you that impressed God. It was His Son. 
And the reason His sacrifice was perfect is because it purifies our conscience. What these people could have never felt was at complete peace with God. For the very moment they killed their calf, they were going to have to do it again. At the very moment their lamb was slaughtered, they were going to have to do it again. And they were never at peace with God, they were only at ease with Him. But you and I have such a beautiful gift given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. And He says, cast all your cares upon Me, for I care for your soul. And we trust Him with our eternal salvation. And He says, you're okay with God. All your sins have been placed upon My back, and they're no longer on yours. You know how the songwriter said it? The old account was settled long ago. Boy, my account was large and in fact it was growing every day. For I was always sinning and I never stopped to pay. When when I looked ahead and I saw such pain and such woe, I ran into the keeper and he settled long ago. You see, they could not have a free and clear conscience before their God. Friend, don't ever forget the fact that the salvation we have in the Lord Jesus Christ allows us to boldly come to the throne of grace. Don't forget that you and I are accepted in the beloved. Don't, my friend, do not forget that Jesus loves you and God the Father loves you. Don't ever forget that. Because that's the reason His sacrifice is perfect. Thirdly, Look with me if you will. It was done in perfect compliance. And that's the reason His sacrifice is perfect. Look here in verse 9. The Bible says, Then said He, Lo, I come to do Thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that He may establish the second. Can I stop right here and talk to you a little bit about there had never up until this point in history been a willing sacrifice. No lamb, had he known where he was going, would have willingly gone. Every time they decided to take that bull or to to take that uh, lamb... And they got close to the altar and he saw that priest with that knife. If he had known what was coming his way, he would have fought. He said, wait a minute, you're you're killing me for your sins? I'm dying for your failures? And you've, you've seen animals fight people. I love when you see somebody walking a dog that's much too big for them. I don't know why 30-pound women own 130-pound dogs. But uh, you, you've seen like the little bitty girl out there walking the Great Dane and the Great Dane sees a bone or, or wants to go smell the other dogs and, and she's pulled by the leash. You, you've seen that. Well, uh, could you imagine if you and I could speak to that lamb on his way to sacrifice and say, hey, buddy, your future... Is not looking bright. They're going to kill you. Do you think he would willingly walk to the place of death? No. Christ did. And in fact, Isaiah 53 tells us exactly how he did it. The Bible says in verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. The fact of the matter is, friend, Jesus did not need to call 10,000 angels. For those angels only had power because of Jesus. He did not need any legion of help. He did not need any aid on the cross that day. Had he not wanted to be there, my friend, we could as men have not contained him. And there He hung on the cross for yours and my transgressions. And He hung there silently and willingly in perfect compliance to what the Lord needed Him to do. You see, had God the Father searched through heaven, there would have been nobody else qualified to come and die. 
The Bible teaches that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. He knew He was going to die. And He knew He was going to die at the bloody hands of men like you and me. But it was for you and me that He did die. The reason His sacrifice is so perfect is He willingly did it. And we have peace with God because of that. Not only is His sacrifice perfect, but I want to look secondly at the permanency of His sacrifice. The permanency of His sacrifice. Look in verses 11 and 12. And honestly, this is the part that has been in my craw all week long. Verse 11, we learn that the atonement is finished. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, notice this, sat down on the right hand of God. Do you ever feel like your job gets monotonous? Like at times it's a little bit the same? You do the day-to-day duties, but they're always the same and they're reoccurring. I remember when I worked at the golf store, uh, we basically hung around all day and we sold golf clubs and it was pretty much, we had to tell the same lies to every schmuck that walked in there. This club, if you like it, is the greatest club in here. If you like this club, well, I misspoke a second ago. It's actually... I was told to say that before, but my personal opinion is this is the best club in here. But every single week, we had one time a week where we'd have to clean the restrooms and we'd have to vacuum the floor every single day. About every twice a week, we'd have to clean the windows. The job was very monotonous. We did the same thing all the time. You ever feel like that? The Bible here says that the priests had duties that they performed every single day. And they were the same every single day. But the uniqueness of the sacrifice of Christ was that it was once and for all. I remember when I was working on a, uh, the Cutting Horse Ranch, I've told you all many stories about the Cutting Horse Ranch. But well, one year we were going to haul hay and My boss called me up and he said, Andrew, I need a couple of your friends to come out and help us haul hay. And so I called two of my friends, Eric and Jeremy. I called them both and I said, guys, if you want to make a little extra cash, you can come and work the hardest labor you've ever done in your life for very little pay. And you'll be miserable all day long, uh, but you can do it. And so they decided that they were going to come haul hay with me. And so Eric and Jeremy, uh, they came over and they helped me haul hay. Well, we were hauling hay all day long. I don't know why, but we decided to do it from 8 in the morning till about 6 in the evening. At least we avoided the hottest part of the day. Not at all. And we were hauling hay, and I remember uh, we hauled hay all the first day. It was Monday. We hauled hay all the first day, and Jimmy would every once in a while drive down on his golf cart. (laughs) Thanks, boss. Appreciate that. He would come down, and he would check on us, make sure we were doing exactly what he wanted, and I remember we went home that that night and he called me and said, Andrew, the taller one I want you to bring back, but the shorter one I don't want back. The funny thing is, Eric was my best friend and Eric was the one that wasn't coming back. But his brother, Jeremy, the taller one, he was coming back. I said, well, why? why? Why don't you want Eric back? And he said, because every time I came by, he was sitting down. Well, the funny thing is, Jeremy was just smart about it, and he only sat down when Jimmy wasn't there. Eric just didn't care. Have you ever noticed that when you sit down, it's a sign that you're done? Verse 12, please don't miss this. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. God only rests When the job is done. Genesis chapter 1. The Bible tells us God created the earth. He created the sea. created the creatures. He created all that was therein. What did He do on the seventh day? After it was all done, He rested. See, God only finishes things He starts. He never takes a break in between. 
That's why Jesus Christ, when He came to this earth and He came to establish the New Testament church, He didn't run off and leave it halfway done. It was established when He left this earth. He only starts things and He finishes things He starts. So verse 12 tells us that as He is now sitting on the right hand of God, you know, I want you to notice, that means that when He was hanging on the cross and He said, It is finished. He meant it. What did He mean? The rituals. The sacrifices. The prophecies. All of it's complete, Lord. Everything that You said would happen. All the pictures. All the typology. Lord, every bit of it is complete in My sacrifice. Friend, don't ever forget that everything that happened in the Old Testament was only leading up to Jesus. Everything that happens in the New Testament only leads up to His second coming. Jesus is this world. Jesus is everything. And you see, as He hung on that cross and He said these words, It is finished. He was saying, everything that the Father wanted me to do is complete. Everything that the Old Testament said that I needed to do. Isaiah 53, Psalm chapter 22. Everything that was there, Lord, it is finished. Friend, everything that Jesus came to do, He did. And He did it well. Hebrews 7 verse 26 through 27 says, For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Jesus doesn't need to go to the Holy of Holies. He is the Holy of Holies. Jesus does not need to wash himself in some basin somewhere to ritually clean himself. Jesus, the Bible says, had no guile in his mouth. He was clean from the beginning. He was perfect, the sinless Son of God. The atonement was finished. Secondly, look with me if you will, the atonement is finalized. Verse 14, For by one offering He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Friend, our salvation does not make sense. It doesn't make sense why me, a sinner, would be offered a pardon, not doing anything to deserve it. And so that is why many religions exist that say, if you can just do this, you can earn some type of respect with the deities, and you will be able to live on this level, or you will be able to escape punishment. Or you will be able to be rewarded with this if you can only accomplish something. Our salvation doesn't make sense because it was free to each and every one of us. But you know what happens? As since our salvation doesn't make sense, people accept that and they make sure that our security does. They say, I didn't earn my salvation, but I got to do something to keep it. If I fall by the wayside, then I would lose this thing that the Lord has given me. What the Bible's teaching is our high priest went in and he offered himself to the Lord. And when he presented his blood to be placed on the mercy seat for yours and my sins, it was done once and for all. And it does not need to be done anymore. I've never understood how you can learn, uh, how you can lose eternal salvation. That's a very non eternal, eternal salvation, is it not? That's the most temporary, eternal thing I've ever heard of in my life. Eternal salvation. Jesus offered us eternal security. And don't ever fall prey to this idea that you didn't do anything to earn your salvation, but now you have to do something to keep it. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9, the Bible says, For by grace are ye saved, and that not of yourself, uh, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. 
It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And what happens is men try reasoning the Word of God out and they say, well, I didn't do anything to earn it, but for my own pride's sake, I have to do something to keep it. And the Bible says the reason salvation costs us nothing is because if any man could have earned it, he would have been prideful. He would have been able to say, well, I earned it, you didn't, and I'm a little better than you. Then why would anybody be able to keep it that way? Jesus died once and for all. And the very moment you accepted that salvation, you accepted it for good. The Bible says that we receive the Holy Spirit. And no matter where we make our bed, He cannot deny Himself. So you have the Holy Spirit of God abiding in your heart, living in your heart. And no matter what you do, friend, He's not leaving you. And because He is sealing you, the Bible teaches us in Ephesians, we're sealed forever. Oh, our atonement is finalized. But this is very important in verses 15 and 16. Our atonement is felt. Look in verse 15. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that He said before... This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. Notice in verse 15, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, not to others. Your fruit is your witness to others. Uh, The Bible says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. How is any man going to see the Holy Ghost in you? I can't even see the Holy Ghost in myself. Why do so many people struggle with the thought of whether they're saved or not? Can I say that it was not a confusing thing? The Lord never meant for us to play this... this, this, up and down type of salvation where one day we feel very saved and secure but the next day we don't at all. The Bible's teaching us in Hebrews now that you're saved, you receive the Holy Spirit of God for a witness to yourself that there be no confusion on whether or not you truly are a son of God. It's a shame how many Christians have to listen to thousands and thousands of sermons just to one day realize the game they've been playing is fake. It's a shame that somebody could go through hearing countless gospel presentations and fool themselves into thinking that they're saved. You say at times, Brother Andrew, I I doubt it. The Holy Ghost will witness to you. Ask Him if you're saved. He'll let you know. In fact, the Bible tells us in Romans 8 verse 16, the Spirit itself bears bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Bible tells us, These things have I written unto you that ye may know ye have eternal life. I'm so concerned with the teenagers of today. I'm so concerned with how they have to go to youth camp to hear that they're lost. And the thing that scares me is adults don't have youth camp. It's not a confusing thing. Salvation was never meant to be difficult to understand. The Bible says that it was given to us that we could know we would have eternal life. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You want to know if you're saved? You have doubts when that question is asked at the end of the service? Ask the Spirit of God. He'll give you an answer. That's what He's there for. To tell you whether or not you truly are a son of God. You can feel your salvation. And salvation is not an emotional uprising. Please don't mistake that. Salvation is not hearing a good rock band play and getting in the mosh pit with your hands up. That's not salvation. And to be honest with you, that's not even worship. The Holy Spirit abides within every Christian. 
At times you have good days, at times you have bad days, but you ought not ever doubt your salvation. Because that's what makes ours different. That's That's what makes ours special. Is that we can feel the very atonement of God because the Spirit beareth witness to our spirit. Oh, His sacrifice is perfect. His sacrifice is permanent, but I want to look finally now. The privilege of His sacrifice. You see, we're entitled to certain things because of how good He is. And now in verse 19, I don't want you to miss this. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say His flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see in this chapter, and I have probably done a very poor job of explaining it, and please do accept my apology. There is so many times when it's referencing the Old Testament type of uh, the way of doing things. Right here when it's speaking of when they would go to the holiest, once a year, the high priest and only the high priest was able to go to what they called the Holy of Holies. Now the priests, after ceremonial washing, were able to cleanse themselves and go to the holy place. And if you would imagine with me, room number one, it's much larger. And in that room, there's several pieces of furniture. There's the table of showbread and there's the the candlestick there. and, And it provides light for those priests. And they were able to go into the holy of holies and they would go to the front of it and they would burn incense on the altar and And they would do those things. And that was the holy place. But only once a year. On the day of atonement. Was the high priest. After much inspection of himself. And after much cleansing of himself. Was he able to go into the holy of holies. That was where the presence of God was. That was where God resided. He would go in there and, and I've heard many times my Bible teachers, I remember they'd tell me, they'd say, they would tie a bell to his ankle. That way if the bell stopped ringing, they could pull him out with a rope they had attached. Many of you probably have heard the same thing. You know, I, I don't know if that's true. I would hope it is. My Bible teachers were teaching me. But I know that if the man was unclean, he would be struck dead the high priest, and he would go once a year. But you see, that day when Jesus died on the cross, what happened when that temple veil was torn into was that it was signifying how that we had complete access to the Holy of Holies. You know who it was through? Not ourselves. Not living a good life and doing your day-to-day devotions and reading your Proverbs. We have access to the throne of grace because of Jesus. And it was His blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat that allowed us this privilege to go into the Holy of Holies. So with that in mind, let us look at three recommendations now. Verse 22. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near. That's the first recommendation. Draw near. But even as it was Old Testament practice in Leviticus 16 and verse 4, for the high priest to purify himself to enter into the Holy of Holies. The Bible says these are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh and water and so put them on. And even as in Exodus 30 verses 18 through 21. The, the, the priest would wash themselves in the laver before entering into the holy place. They would do these ceremonial washings to, to signify an outward cleansing of themselves. And, 
as they would go into the holy place and as they would go into the Holy of Holies, they would cleanse themselves and make sure they were ready to meet with the Lord. Even as that happens, I believe verse 22 is telling us, let us draw near just like they did. I think many times too many dirty Christians go to God. And you say, He always accepts me. Friend, when, we were, when I go coon hunting with my dad, sometimes we have things happen that aren't supposed to happen. I remember one time we caught a porcupine. Let me just say, the porcupine didn't live through it, but he won the battle. Them dogs had porcupine prickles all in their, ma- all in their face. We took uh, uh, some needle-nosed pliers and we grabbed them, uh, them quills and we would yank them out. And that dog... And we, were, we thought we were doing the dog a favor. We called Mo Barbie after we got done with the one dog. We're like, Mo, we got into a, a porcupine. What should we do? He's like, just cut them off at the quill. They're shaped like a fish hook, so don't pull them out. <laughs> Sorry, hammer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have unfortunate things happen, but sometimes the worst thing that happens when we go coon hunting is the dogs catching a skunk. It happens occasionally, especially when we take JT's dog. I'm just kidding, JT. But you'll go up and, and you know, you just hear him bark and you don't know what's going on. Sometimes my dad has a good enough ear to hear, you know, something's not right. And if the wind's not blowing that direction, you don't realize what's happening until you get right up on him and you see that coon with a white stripe down its back. And you get up close and you begin to smell the odor. And these dogs have been sprayed by that skunk, no telling how many times. It's the nastiest, most direct, most overpowering scent I've ever smelled in my life. You know what I don't do? Come here, buddy. Lick daddy on the face. Come on, it's so good to see you. Good job, puppy. Yes, 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 yes. You're such a good puppy. I don't go hug that dog. He smells. He stinks. I want to shoot the dog and leave him lay. And we'll have to hook them dogs up to that leash and we'll have to walk with them. And we've got our nose covered. We're just, we're trying to breathe through our mouths and we want to vomit because the smell is so overpowering. We throw them in the truck. We get them home. My dad's place smells like skunk for the next three days. It's the nastiest thing I've ever smelled in my life. And you wonder why God doesn't want you coming to him dirty. Why, if you're not living a life acceptable and pleasing to Him, would He say, come on, come. I want you to come talk to me. I want you, I want you, I want you to come ask things of me. Isaiah chapter 1, these people began to do the ceremonies just because. Became very ritualistic, if you will. Isaiah chapter 1, the Bible tells us that, G, that the Lord's ear would not hear their prayers anymore. Because their sins had separated his ear from hearing their prayers. They were filthy, so he would not help them. They were filthy, so he would not hear them. So why would he hear us? Why, if we have this access to the throne of God, that we may come boldly to him in our time of need, that we may obtain mercy and we may obtain grace, why would we think it'd be okay to go to him Dirty, rotten. The priests couldn't. You see, Psalm 73 verse 1 says this. Truly, God is good to Israel. But He's good to us as well. But then the writer, his name is Asaph, goes on to say, Even to such... As are of a clean heart. God is good. His duty is to be good. Our duty is to be clean. His responsibility is being good. And he's got that down. Our responsibility is making sure we're clean. Not only do we need to draw near. But in verse 23. It tells us the second. Recommendation. Let us hold fast 
the profession of our faith. So it says, let us draw near. Now it's telling us to hold fast. You know what's unique about this verse number 23? It says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. That word faith is the Greek word elpis. It is used 54 times in Scripture. 53 of those times it's translated hope. This is the only time it's translated faith. And if you read a lot of commentaries, you know what they say. It should have been translated hope. I don't believe that. I believe God knew what He was doing when He gave us the Bible. I believe it's divinely preserved for you and I. So my question is, why was this one translated faith? And all the other 53 times, hope. Can I just submit to you tonight? Because our faith is our hope. And that's what he's saying. Let us hold fast to our faith. Because it is our only hope. Let us hold fast to the faith that we now have in Jesus Christ. To this new covenant. To this new sacrifice. That you don't have to kill goats. You don't have to kill sheep. You do not have to kill bulls. You do not have to kill them. Hold fast to that profession of faith. Which is your hope. Can I say tonight, when Jesus is involved, there's always hope. I don't care if you're standing on the banks of the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army closing in. The Bible says that the land had trapped the children of Israel. They had nowhere to go. They couldn't turn back. That was Pharaoh's army. They couldn't go right up this way because the land had trapped them in. They couldn't go this way. The land had trapped them in. The Bible says they were in a great strait. Nowhere to go but forward. And everybody looks at Moses and says, Moses, surely you've brought us out here because there were no graves in Egypt. Surely, Moses, we're going to die. Surely we're going to die. Moses, there's no hope. We've lost all hope. Moses, what are we going to do? You know what Moses does? He stands up, says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. When Jesus is involved, there's always hope. I don't care if your name's Lazarus. And Jesus was supposed to be here a bit earlier. Jesus should have been here a few days ago. I mean, he's not running a little bit behind. He's way late. And it's too late now because Lazarus is done dead and gone. And Lazarus' sisters come out to the Lord. Lord, if you would only have been here just a few days ago. Lazarus is dead. It's too late, Lord. But can I say, when Jesus is involved, there's always hope. And Jesus stands up and he says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes forth. When he's involved, there's always hope. I don't care if you're in an upper room somewhere. And the man that you've given your life to following for the past three years, you've forsaken house, you've forsaken wife, you've forsaken friends, you've forsaken occupation. Now the man you've given your life to follow, supposed to be the Messiah, supposed to be the King, is dead. You have no answers. You don't know what's going to go on. All you have is a handful of promises of a dead man. And then something happens down at the tomb. And Peter can't quite believe what he's hearing. And the disciples begin to catch a scurry of some women that say, I went down to the tomb and the Lord wasn't there. There wasn't, he wasn't there. And, and there, was a, uh, there was an angel there and he says, uh, surely the Lord has risen as he said. Surely, I mean, we saw him die. Surely we saw the spear thrust into his side. We saw that there was no blood left. We saw the water run out. We saw that it was over. 
But can I say, when Jesus is involved, there's always hope. And I don't really care what your problem is. I don't care if it's a Red Sea. I don't care if it's, uh, you don't feel nobody's around you. I don't care if family's forsaken you. I don't care if friends have left you. My friend, when Jesus is involved, there's always hope. And Hebrews is telling us here, let us hold fast to the faith. Let us hold fast to the profession that Jesus Christ is still on the throne. Let us hold fast to the fact that Jesus still loves us and that our salvation is found in only Him. Let us hold fast to the fact that our hope is not in flesh and blood, but in the King of kings. Hold fast. Hold fast, Christian. I don't care what it is. When Jesus is involved, There's always hope. Oh, and then finally look in verse 24. Now this is important. Considering all this. Verse 24. And let us consider one another. To provoke unto love and to good works. So verse 22, let us draw near. Verse uh, 23, let us hold fast. And verse 24, let us consider one another. And oftentimes we quote this next verse with great fervency. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching But verse 24 tells us why we ought to come. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Now Christians are good at provoking. I remember when I was much younger, me and Amanda did not get along. We struggled to say the least. Now it was not my fault, it was definitely hers. I loved her. She just hated me. I remember one day she was throwing some rocks up in the air and randomly hit me in the head. Makes sense. You would just throw rocks in the sky and bust someone's skull open. I remember one day I went to get some Lucky Charms. And you may think that this is ignorant. But I literally thought this box of Lucky Charms had missed the marshmallow shooter. I said it was going down the conveyor belt. And this is what I imagined as a little kid. The cereal was going down the conveyor belt. And as it got to the one spout with the bad part of the Lucky Charms, the healthy part... It got a full dose of those, but it continued on to the good part, to the marshmallows, and it must have been plugged up because I pour this box out and there's nothing but the bad part. And I wrote a letter. I did not know until many years later, Mandy had gone through and eaten every marshmallow Mandy was good at provoking. (laughs) And let's just face it, each and every one of us at some point in our life have dealt with somebody who provoked us. (laughs) Maybe not in the right way, but they provoked us. You know, like, you know, you want to ball your fist. They provoked you. But in the same way, the Bible tells us here, It is each and every one of our duty to provoke one another in a positive way. And I want you to understand, verse 25 was written not to Christians to tell them, you need to go to church so you can get something from it. But you need to go to church so that you can give something. Not offerings. Not your opinion. So that you can provoke one another. So that you can help 
someone who's had a bad week and that you can put your arm around them and say, friend, I love you. Not so you can come to church and criticize the Sunday school teacher now he doesn't teach well or, or criticize the choir because they sang a song that was really weird or, or, or criticize the preacher because he was a little bit off of his game that day. That's provoking somebody just not in the right way. Verse 24. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. Can I ask you a quick question? If people judge your Christianity off the love you have for other Christians... Could they tell you were a Christian? Could they tell you were a disciple of Christ? Because it is in the light of all what Christ has done for us. And that He is our eternal priest. And we have eternal security. And we have eternal salvation. And it's such a wonderful hope that we have in Him. It is because of this that you and I ought to come to church. It's because of this we ought to help each other while we're here.